Welcome, listeners, to part two of Cobwebs for an Empty Skull, tales that are really quite wacky. Today you'll hear a story about business opportunities in a person's hair, a terrible magical joke, the absurd difficulties of seafaring treacherous waters, and an indulgent genie giant. Sheesh, say that one a couple of times, yikes. Right now, I'm enjoying a delicious Earl Grey, so good. It's raining outside at the moment, so the mood is set for story time. I'm all rugged up and ready to read these absurd tales. Now, these stories were written in 1874, so they may have old and strange views. If anything is offensive, I cut it out, but I like to keep as much of the original content in, even if it's on the nose. But I think we all can handle it. A couple of words I'd like to define for you, because being written in Old English, some things just don't make sense. The word ardour, A-R-D-O-U-R, is the same as saying passion, love, zeal, or fervour. And catholicity means broad-mindedness and liberality. Now, let's get straight to your wacky tales, you lovely listeners. In the city of Algamon resided the Prince Champau, who was madly enamoured of the Lady Capilla. She returned his affection unopened. In the matter of back hair, the Lady Capilla was blessed even beyond her deserts. Her natural pigtail was so intolerably long that she employed two pages to look after it when she walked out, the one a few yards behind her, the other at the extreme end of the line. Their names were Dan and Beersheba, respectively. Aside from salaries to these dependents, and quite apart from the consideration of Makasa, the possession of all this animal filament was financially unprofitable. The hair market was buoyant, and hers represented a large amount of ideal capital, and it was otherwise a source of annoyance and irritation. For all the young men of the city were hotly in love with her, and skirmishing for a lovelock, they seldom troubled Dan much, but the outlying Bathsheba had an animated time of it. He was subject to constant incursions, and was always in a riot. The picture I have drawn to illustrate this history shows nothing of all these squabbles. My pen revels in the battle's din, but my peaceful pencil loves to depict the scenes I know something about. Although the Lady Capilla was unwilling to reciprocate the passion of Champau, the man, she was not averse to quiet interviews with Champau the Prince. In the course of one of these, as she sat listening to his carefully rehearsed and really artistic avowals, with her tail hanging out of the window, she suddenly interrupted him. My dear Prince, she said, it is all nonsense, you know, to ask for my heart, but I am not mean. You shall have a lock of my hair. Do you think? replied the prince, that I could be so sordid as to accept a single jewel from that glorious crown. I love this hair of yours very dearly, I admit, but only because of its connection with your divine head. Sever that connection and I should value it no more than I would a tail plucked from its native cow. This comparison seems to me a very fine one, but tastes differ and to the Lady Capilla it seemed quite the reverse. Rising indignantly, she marched away, her cue running in through the window and gradually tapering off the interview, as it were. 
Prince Champau saw that he had missed his opportunity and resolved to repair his error. Straight away, he forged an order on Bathsheba for 30 yards of Lovelock. To serve this writ, he sent his business partner, for the prince was wont to beguile his dragging leisure by tonsorial diversions in an obscure quarter of the town. At first, Bathsheba was skeptical, but when he saw the writing in real ink, his scruples vanished, and he chopped off the amount of souvenir demanded. Now Champu's partner was the court barber, and by the use of a peculiar hair oil, which the two of them had concocted, they soon managed to bolden the pates of all the male aristocracy of the place. Then, to supply the demand so created, they devised beautiful wigs from the Lady Capilla's lost tresses, which they sold at marvellous profit, and so they were enabled to retire from this narrative with good incomes. It was known that Lady Capilla, who, since the alleged murder of one Bathsheba, had shut herself up like a hermit, or a jackknife would re-enter society, and a great ball was given to do her honour. The fewity, bank and ration of Algamon had assembled in the guild hall for that purpose. While the revelry was at its fiercest, the dancing at its loosest, the rooms at their hottest, and the perspiration at spring tide, there was the sound of wheels outside, begetting an instant hush of expectation within. The dancers ceased to spin, and all the gentlemen crowded about the door. As the Lady Capilla entered, these instinctively fell into two lines, and she passed down the space between them, with her little tail behind her. As the end of the latter came into the room, the wigs of the two gentlemen nearest the door lipped off to join their parent stem. In their haste to recover them, the two gentlemen bent eagerly forward, knocking their shiny pals together with a vehemence that shattered them like eggshells. The wigs of the next pair were similarly affected, and in seeking to recover them, the pair similarly perished. Then crack, spat, pash, at every step the lady took. There were two heads that beat as one. In three minutes, there was but a single living male in the room. He was an odd one who, having a lady opposite him, had merely pitched himself headlong into her stomach, doubling her like a lemon squeezer. It was merry to see the Lady Capilla floating through the mazy dance that night, with all those wigs fighting for their old place in her pigtail. The Magician's Little Joke About the middle of the 15th century, there dwelt in the Black Forest a pretty but unfashionable young maiden named Simperella Whiskey Blot. The first of these names was hers in Monopoly. The other she enjoyed in common with her father. Simperella was the most beautiful 15th century girl I ever saw. She had coloured eyes, a complexion, some hair and two lips very nearly alike which partially covered a lot of teeth. She was gifted with the complement of legs commonly worn at that period, supporting a body to which were loosely attached, in the manner of her country, as many arms as she had any use for, insomuch as she was not required to hold a baby. But all these charms were only so many objective points for the operations of the paternal cudgel, for this father of hers was a hard, unfeeling man, who had no bowels of compassion for his bludgeon. He would put it to work early, 
and keep it going all day. And when it was worn out with hard service, instead of rewarding it with steady employment, he would cruelly throw it aside and get a fresh one. It is scarcely to be wondered at that a girl harried in this way should be driven to the insane expedient of falling in love. Near the neat mud cottage in which Simperella vegetated was a dense wood, extending for miles in various directions, according to the point from which it was viewed. By a method readily understood, it had been so arranged that it was the next easiest thing in the world to get into it, and the very easiest thing in the world to stay there. In the center of this labyrinth was a castle of the early promiscuous order of architecture, an order which was until recently much employed in the construction of powder works, but is now entirely exploded. In this baronial hall lived an eligible single party, a giant so tall he used a stepladder to put on his hat, and could not put his hand into his pocket without kneeling. He lived entirely alone, and gave himself up to the practice of iniquity, devising prohibitory liquor laws, imposing the income tax, and drinking shilling claret. But seeing Simperola one day, he bent himself into the form of a horseshoe magnet to look into her eyes. Whether it was his magnetic attitude acting upon a young heart steeled by adversity, or his chivalric forbearance in not eating her, I know not. I only know that from that moment, she became riotously enamored of him, and the reader may accept either the scientific or the popular explanation according to the bent of his mind. She at once asked the giant in marriage, and obtained the consent of his parents by betraying her father into their hands, explaining to them, however, that he was not good to eat but might be drunk on the premises. The marriage proved a very happy one, but the household duties of the bride were extremely irksome. It fatigued her to dress the bevies for dinner. It nearly broke her back to black her lord's boots without any scaffolding. It took her all day to perform any kindly little office for him, but she bore it all uncomplainingly until one morning he asked her to part his black hair. Then the bent sapling of her spirit flew up and hit him in the face. She gathered up some French novels and retired to a lonely tower to breathe out her soul in unavailing regrets. One day she saw below her, in the forest, a dear gazelle, gladding her with his soft black eye. She leaned out of the window and said, Scat! The animal did not move. Then she waved her arms above the scribes and said, Shoo! This time he did not move as much as he did before. Simperella decided he must have a bill against her, so she closed her shutters, drew down the blind, and pinned the curtains together. A moment later, she opened them and peeped out. Then she went down to examine his collar, that she might order one like it. When the gazelle saw Simperella approach, he arose, and beckoning with his tail, made off slowly into the wood. Then, Simperella perceived this was a supernatural gazelle, a variety now extinct, but which then pervaded the Swarzwald in considerable quantity. Sent by some good magician, who owed the giant a grudge, to pilot her out of the forest, nothing could exceed her joy at this discovery. She whistled a dirge, sang a Latin hymn, and preached a funeral discourse all in one breath. 
Such were the artless methods by which the full heart in the 15th century was compelled to express ingratitude for benefits. The advertising columns of the daily papers were not then open to the benefactor's pen. All would have been well, but for the fact that it was not. In following her deliverer, Simperella observed that his golden collar was inscribed with the mystic words, Hands off. She tried hard to obey the injunction. She did her level best. No sooner had her fingers touched the slender chain, depending from the magic collar, that the poor animal's eyes emitted twin tears, which coursed silently but firmly down his nose, vacating it more in sorrow than in anger. Then he looked up, reproachfully, into her face. Those were his first tears. This was his last look. In two minutes by the watch, he was blind as a mole. There is but little more to tell. The giant ate himself to death. The castle moldered and crumbled into pig pens. Empires rose and fell, kings ascended their thrones and got down again. Mountains grew grey, and rivers bald-headed. Suits in chancery were brought and decided, and those from the tailor were paid for. The ages came, like maiden aunts, uninvited, and lingered until they became a bore. And still, Simperella, with the magician's curse upon her, conducted her sightless guide through the interminable wilderness. To all others, the labyrinth had yielded up its clue. The hunter threaded its maze. The woodman plunged confidently into its innermost depths. The peasant child gathered ferns unscared in its sunless dells. But often the child abandoned his botany in terror. The woodman bolted for home, and the hunter's heart went down into his boots at the sight of a fair young spectre leading a blind phantom through the silent glades. I saw them there myself in 1860, while I was gunning. I shot them. Seafaring My envious rivals have always sought to cast discredit upon the following tale by affirming that mere unadorned truth does not constitute a work of literary merit. Be it so, I care not what they call it. A rose with any other smell would be as sweet. In the autumn of 1868, I wanted to go from Sacramento, California, to San Francisco. I at once went to the railway office and brought a ticket, the clerk telling me that would take me there. But when I tried it, it wouldn't. Vainly, I laid it on the railway and sat down upon it. It would not move, and every few minutes an engine would come along and crowd me off the track. I never travelled by so badly managed a line. I then resolved to go by way of the river, and took passage on a steamboat. The engineer of this boat had once been a candidate for the state legislature, when I was editing a newspaper. Stung to madness by the argument, I had advanced against his election, which consisted mainly that his cousin was hanged for horse-stealing, or how that his sister had an intolerable squint which a free people could never abide. He has sworn to be revenged. After his defeat, I had confessed the charges were false, so far as he personally was concerned, but this did not seem to appease him. He declared he would get even on me, and he did. He blew up the boat. Being thus summarily set ashore, 
I determined that I would be independent of common carriers, destitute of common courtesy. I purchased a wooden box, just large enough to admit one, and not transferable. I lay down in this, double-locked it on the outside, and carrying it to the river, launched it upon the watery waste. The box, I soon discovered, had a hereditary tendency to turn over. I had parted my hair in the middle before embarking, but the precaution was inadequate. It secured not immunity, only impartiality, the box turning over one way as readily as the other. I could counteract this evil only by shifting my tobacco from cheek to cheek, and in this way I got on tolerably well until my navy sprang a leak near the stern. I now began to wish I had not locked down the cover. I could have got out and walked ashore, but it was childish to give way to foolish regrets, so I lay perfectly quiet and yelled. Presently I thought of my jackknife, but by this time the ship was so waterlogged as to be a little more stable. This enabled me to get the knife from my pocket without upsetting more than six or eight times, an inspired hope. Taking the whittle between my teeth, I turned over upon my stomach and cut a hole through the bottom near the bow. Turning back again, I awaited the result. Most men would have waited the result, I think, if they could not have got out. For some time there was no result. The ship was too deeply laden astern, where my feet were, and water will not run up hills unless it is paid to do it. But when I called in all my faculties for a good earnest think, the weight of my intellect turned the scale. It was like a cargo of pig lead in the forecastle. The water, for which nearly an hour I have kept down, by drinking it as it rose about my lips, began to run out at the hole I had scuttled, faster than it could be admitted at the one in the stern. And in a few moments, the bottom was so dry, you might have lighted a match upon it, if you had been there and obtained the captain's permission. I was all right now. I had got into San Palbo Bay, where it was all plain sailing. If I could manage to keep off the horizon, I should be somewhere before daylight. But a new annoyance was in store for me. The steamboats on these waters are constructed of very frail materials, and whenever one came into collision with my flotilla, she immediately sank. This was most exasperating, for the piercing shrieks of the hapless crews and passengers prevented my getting any sleep. Such disagreeable voices as these people had would have tortured an ear of corn. I felt as if I would like to step out and beat them soft-headed with a club, though of course, I had not the heart to do so while the padlock held fast. The reader, if he is obliging, will remember that there was formerly an obstruction in the harbour of San Francisco, called Blossom Rock, which was some fathoms underwater. But not fathoms enough to suit shipmasters, it was removed by an engineer named Von Schmidt. This person bored a hole in it and set down some men who gnawed out the whole interior, leaving the rock a mere shell. Into this drawing room suite were inserted 30 tons of powder, 10 barrels of nitroglycerin, and a woman's temper. Von Schmidt then put in something explosive and corked up the opening, leaving a long wire hanging out. When all these preparations were complete, the inhabitants of San Francisco came out to see the fun. They perched thickly upon Telegraph Hill from base to summit. They swarmed innumerable upon the beach. The whole region was black with them.
All that day they waited, and came again the next. Again they were disappointed, and again they returned full of hope. For three long weeks, they did nothing but squat upon the eminence, looking fixedly at the wrong place. But when it transpired that von Schmidt had hastily left the state directly, and that he had completed his preparations, leaving the wire floating in the water, in the hope that some electrical eel might swim against it and ignite the explosives, the people began to abate their ardour and move out of town. They said it might be a good while before a qualified gymnotus would pass that way, although the state ichthyologia assured them that he had put some eel's eggs into the headwaters of the Sacramento River not two weeks previously. But the country was very beautiful at that time of the year, and the people would not wait. So when the explosion really occurred, there wasn't anybody in the vicinity to witness it. It was a stupendous explosion all the same as the unhappy gymnotist discovered, to his cost. Now, I have often thought that if this mighty convulsion had occurred a year or two earlier than it really did, it would have been bad for me, as I floated idly past unconscious of danger, as it was. My little bark was carried out into the broad Pacific, and sank in ten thousand fathoms of the coldest water. It makes my teeth chatter to relate it. No charge for attendance. Near the road leading from Dushtekich to Lagerhaus may be seen the ruins of a little cottage. It never was a very pretentious pile, but it has a history. About the middle of the last century, it was occupied by a Heinrich Schneider, who was a small farmer. So small a farmer, his clothes wouldn't fit him without a good deal of taking in. But Heinrich Schneider was young, and he had a wife. However, most small farmers have when young. They were rather poor. The farm was just large enough to keep them comfortably hungry. Schneider was not literary in his taste. His sole reading was an old dog's-eared copy of the Arabian Nights done into German. And in that, he read nothing but the story of Aladdin and his wonderful lamp. Of his 500th perusal of that, he conceived a brilliant idea. He would rub his lamp and corral a genie of his own. So he put a thick leather glove on his right hand and went to the cupboard to get out the lamp. He had no lamp, but this disappointment, which would have been instantly fatal to a more despondent man, was only an agreeable stimulus to him. He took out an old iron candle snuffer and went to work upon that. Now, iron is very hard. It requires more rubbing than any other metal. I once chaffed the genie out of an anvil, but I was quite weary before I got him all out. The slightest irritation of a leaden water pipe would have fished the same genie out of it like a rat from its hole. But having planted all his poultry, sown his potatoes, and set out his wheat, Heinrich had the whole summer before him, and he was patient. He devoted all his time to compelling the attendance of the supernatural. When the autumn came and the good wife reaped the chickens, dug out the apples, plucked the pigs and other cereals, a wonderfully abundant harvest it was. Schneider's crops had flourished amazingly. That was because he did not worry them all summer with agricultural implements. One evening when the produce had been stored, Heinrich sat at his fireside, operating upon his candle snuffer with the simple faith as in the early spring. 
Suddenly, there was a knock at the door. And the expected genie put in an appearance. His advent begot no little surprise in the good couple. He was a very substantial incarnation indeed of the supernatural. About eight feet in length, extremely fat, thick-limbed, ill-favored, and generally unpretty. He did not at first sight impress his new master any too favorably. However, he was given a stool at the fireside, and Heinrich plied him with multitudes of questions. Where did he come from? Whom had he last served? How did he like Aladdin? And did he think they should get on well? To all these queries of the genie returned evasive answers. He was Delphic to the verge of unintelligibility. He would only nod mysteriously, muttering beneath his breath in some unknown tongue, probably Arabic. In which, however, his master thought he could distinguish the words roast and boiled with significant frequency. This genie must have served at last in the capacity of a cook. This was a gratifying discovery. For the next four months or so, there would be nothing to do about the farm. The slave could prepare the family meals during the winter and in the spring go regularly to work. Schneider was too shrewd to risk everything but extravagant demands all at once. He remembered the rock's egg of the legend and thought he would proceed with caution. So the good couple brought out their cooking utensils and by pantomime inducted the slave into the mystery of their use. They showed him the larder, the cellars, the granary, the chicken coops, and everything. He appeared interested and intelligent, apprehended the salient points of the situation with marvelous ease, and nodded like he would drop his big head off, did everything but talk. After this frau prepared the evening meal, the genie assisting very satisfactorily, except that his notions of quantity were rather too liberal. Perhaps this was natural in one accustomed to palaces and courts. When all was on the table, by way of testing his slave's obedience, Heinrich sat down at the board and carelessly rubbed the candle snuffer. The genie was there in a second. Not only so, but he fell upon them with ardour and sincerity that was alarming to them. In two minutes, he had got away with everything on the table. The rapidity with which that spirit crowded all manner of edibles into his neck was simply shocking. Having finished his repast, he stretched himself before the fire and went to sleep. Heinrich and Barbara were depressed in spirit. They sat up until nearly morning in silence, waiting for the genie to vanish for the night. But he did not perceptibly vanish any. Moreover, he had not vanished next morning, he had risen with the lark, and was preparing breakfast, having made his estimates upon a basis of most immoderate consumption. To this, he soon sat down, with the same catholicity of appetite that had distinguished him the previous evening. Having bolted this preposterous breakfast, he arrayed his fat face in a sable scowl, beat his master with a stew pan, stretched himself before the fire, and again addressed himself to sleep. Over a furniture and clandestine meal in the larder, Heinrich and Barbara confessed themselves thoroughly heartsick of the supernatural. I told you so, said he. Depend upon it. Patient industry is a thousand percent better than this invisible agency. I will now take the fatal candle snuffer a mile away from here, rub it real hard, fling it aside and run away. But he didn't. 
During the night, ten feet of snow had fallen. It lay all winter, too. Early the next spring, there emerged from that cottage, by the wayside, the unstable framework of a man dragging through seas of melting snow and a tottering female of dejected aspect, forlorn, crippled, famishing and discouraged, these melancholy relics held on their way until they came to a crossroads, all leading to Lager House, where they saw, clinging to an upright post, the tatter of an old placard. It read as follows, Lost, strayed or stolen, from Hare, Shakhoffer's Grand Museum, the celebrated Pentagonian giant, Ugalula, height 8 foot 2 inches, elegant figure, handsome, intelligent features, sprightly and vivacious in conversation, of engaging address, temperate in diet, harmless and tactable in disposition, answers to the nickname of Fritz Snedecker. Anyone returning him to here will receive 7,000 reward, and no questions asked. It was a tempting offer, but they did not go back for the giant. But he was afterwards discovered sleeping sweetly upon the hearthstone, after a hearty meal of empty barrels and boxes. And being secured, he was found to be too fat for egress by the door. So the house was pulled down to let him out. And that is how it happens to be in ruins now. Okay, nothing like some strange old tales, right? Which one was your favourite? My one would be seafaring. Totally cracked me up. I did my best not to laugh during the narration when his ship was blown up. God, that gets me every time. The one stylistic difference though that always weirds me out with these stories is when I read these tales, there appears to be an absence of narrative segue. So what do I mean? I mean, at one point you're reading and absorbing the situation, and then moments later, you're reading a completely different scenario that resides in the same story. For sure they are linked, but it feels a little abrupt. Kind of like when you have two scenes in a film and they're hard cut, which can leave the audience, me, a bit jarred as to the tone and direction of the film. I think the word here would be disorientated. But this was written in 1874, so I'm cutting it slack in that space for sure. Style, pacing, and narrative flow have changed a lot since then. Now, brilliant people, it's halfway through the week. Have a coffee or a tea, and if you get some time, support me. <laughs> it takes two minutes for an iTunes review, so swing on by if you can, and spread the word that the podcast exists. A big high five to all you awesomes out there that are doing this or have already done so. And... If you're keen to show some love to the podcast by donating a couple of dollary dues per month, you can reach my Patreon at www.patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, forward slash S-F-G-T, and go from there. Right now, I have four old great enforcers, and I'm over the moon, working up research and gathering stories for each member just for their episode. This Friday, folks, I'm doing a special one. Well, trying to gather the stories for it, that is. So stick with me then because it will be different. Have yourself a creepy night or wonderful day. And as always, till next we meet.